Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, it's Devin Kadiyama, and you're listening to The Bay. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different. On Monday night, we had a live virtual event with a group of KQED reporters who are experts in their own beats. And we asked each of them to share the biggest local stories that they're following in 2021. We also took some of your questions. So to everybody who came out, thank you so much, because I feel like this was just a really important conversation to have right now with so much happening. And here it is. All right. Um, So there are a lot of topics that we could have talked about that had changed in 2020 or that we should be looking for in 2021. We've kind of divided this conversation into a couple of groups. The first group is talking about the theme where we live. And the second group is going to be looking at what we do and how we do it. All right. The first group of reporters who are going to talk a little bit more about the stories that they're thinking about this coming year. KQED science reporter Danielle Venton covers a lot of different things related to science, but uh, in particular, we're going to be talking to her about wildfires. Uh, We also have our housing reporter and co-host of the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, Molly Solomon. All right. And we also have our transportation editor, Dan Brecky. So for this first group, I kind of want to start with Molly, because I think one of the stories that a lot of us were most familiar with before the pandemic was the Bay Area's housing crisis. And uh, over the past year, we've seen you know people lose jobs. We've seen people not be able to pay rent. There's been a lot of moving within and out of California altogether by choice and by force. And so I want to get a sense from you, what's the big story that you're thinking about in 2021? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Devin. This is fun. I wish I could see everybody that's that's tuned in and watching us too, but thanks for putting this on and putting this together. You know, the housing crisis, we we say we had a crisis, you know, before the pandemic and we still have a housing crisis after the pandemic. And in many ways, it's only revealed how unequal people's realities when it comes to housing are in the Bay Area. Um, I think something that I'm really going to be paying attention to and focusing on is just how that's playing out. You know, you've kind of got two um, very different economies or ways of life that are happening for people right now. People have been affected in these very different ways. You know, a lot of people who, you know, were working in service industry jobs that 
were already in this position where they were paying so much of their paycheck to rent, where they were kind of on the brink there. Um, you know, it just took like one crisis for them to to fall behind. Like that crisis is here. That crisis happened when a lot of people lost their jobs and we've had this huge economic hit because of the pandemic. So I feel like there's such a large group of renters primarily that are just extremely vulnerable now, are not getting their income or have tremendously lost hours and are trying to stave off becoming homeless and becoming, you know, evicted or being forced to, to leave. Um, right. So I'm paying really close attention to that, and I'm really interested to see what the state is going to do and how this whole conversation about how long will we have eviction protections, a moratorium, are we going to be able to actually distribute all of the rent relief and assistance that people need right now? Um, and I said, you know, it's kind of like two different realities right now, because I think on the other hand, you look at things like the the housing market and it's just soaring. Like, you know, I I guess I'm I'm living the housing beat right now. I just moved out of my studio that, you know, when I moved back to the Bay Area a year ago felt like a steal. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. felt like, yeah, oh, this right, is a right. good deal. And then I'm looking around and it's like rents are dropping twenty five percent and like I could move out of my place and get a way better deal. Um, right. So, I mean, it's just it's interesting to kind of see how the pandemic has really shifted things. And then at the same time, it's like we're in the middle of this economic recession, this pandemic and housing hasn't really budged in terms of like the market. You know, homes are still right. selling for a million dollars, if not more. So you're seeing, you know, people that are kind of on the edge and then people that have maybe been waiting to buy a home and move to the suburbs or have more space and when they're taking advantage of that right now. Yeah, actually, I want to get into that that equity piece with with everybody here. Um, something that the pandemic has exposed are these inequities that have existed well before the pandemic, but it's it's just so heightened right now. And I think one place that you're seeing this play out is with public transit. And so, Dan, I want to bring you in and talk to you about how how are the various public transit agencies, of which there are a lot here in the Bay Area, thinking about that equity piece in 2021? Well, you know, what Molly said um, really resonates with me in terms of this uh, theme of two different lives or two different uh, paths of life that people have right now. Because uh, people like us, uh, and I'm talking about the KQED us, we're mostly working at home. We're yeah. uh, extraordinarily privileged that way. Uh, I can tell you exactly the last day I was on BART. Um, it was on uh, March 13th last year. I was actually on a, a jury pool uh, mm. in downtown Oakland. And um, after that, uh, my my wife wouldn't hear, hear of me uh, riding on, on public transportation. But... You know, so so what's happening is that uh, public transit, as we all know, if we've been paying attention to that, has taken a huge blow from the uh, pandemic. And, uh, you know, ridership, depending on the, uh, the agency, has gone down, um, you know, 90 percent at BART. It's maybe in the high down in the high 80s now. It's been down 95 percent, 98 percent. On things like the uh, the ferries, uh, the uh, Golden Gate Transit ferries, uh, Caltrain, um, some of the bus agencies have been doing a little bit better. Uh, for instance, AC Transit, which uh, serves a, a, a really a different 
uh, customer base than um, than say Caltrain, mm-hmm. and and so one of the things that's become a really big theme, and I think you see this uh, probably in, in the most pronounced way uh, at Muni in San Francisco, is that um, here is an agency. It was the number one busiest agency in in the uh, Bay Area, one of the busiest in the country, over seven hundred thousand writers a day. Uh, that went down overnight by eighty percent, but what really revealed itself very quickly to the people running Muni is that it is an essential service for essential workers. And for lower income workers, especially who have no other ready means of getting to work, they, they don't have cars, they don't have the privilege of working at home uh, because uh, they have jobs at grocery stores, at uh, as security guards, uh, whatever the the jobs are, health, uh, medical workers, uh, healthcare workers, uh, especially, mm-hmm. they Essential have workers, to yeah. they have to get to work. And mm-hmm. so, um, what happened at Muni was they saw that while they had to shut down a huge uh, part of the network, there are some parts of it like the fourteen, the Mission bus, which is several runs actually, it, it had never seen more traffic than this. So they are rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Uh, their network to serve uh, lower-income workers, essentially. And this is being reflected, I think, in in ways throughout Bay Area transit agencies. Just today, there was an announcement, for instance, that um, something called the Clipper Start Program, which is a a program that gives fare breaks to to lower-income workers, is being tremendously expanded uh, throughout the, the Bay Area. Um, I think this is just a realization that um, all these agencies that had a a certain kind of plan a year ago, right, really big ticket expansion plans and and really focused on more affluent workers really have to think about how their services work in a much different way. Right. I want to talk about some of those big ideas um, towards the end of our conversation here. Uh, because I think that's a really important part part of the conversation. Um, this this first section is really about where we live, uh, and and in a lot of ways how we live. For many of us, wildfires are this ongoing story that again predated the pandemic, but that are going to come up again this year as well. And Danielle, I want to bring you in now, as a reporter who has covered California wildfires. Can you talk about um, how the Bay Area and how Northern California is preparing this year with everything else that's going on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the Bay Area, you know, unless you live in a city, you probably live in or close to an area that is at risk of wildfires. And even if you're in a city, you most certainly feel the smoke uh, or experience the smoke from wildfires. So these are things that affect the entire, not just but the whole Bay Area, but the whole state. Um, And the what I think is interesting right now is we're starting to see some hopeful trends with the state and state lawmakers taking fire prevention more seriously. Um, This year in the governor's proposed budget for the first time, there's a huge pool of money for fire prevention, about a billion dollars, and that has not happened before. It's less than many advocates would like, but but it is the first time that that much money is is being proposed to go towards fire prevention. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also seeing a slew of bills, of proposed bills um, of lawmakers finally thinking about where is proper to build, where is proper to rebuild. How do we get money for retrofitting older homes that are not fire safe? How do we, how do we build some fire safety steps into new developments? Um, some of these ideas would have been completely unthinkable before, before mm-hmm. paradise. Um, 
that you could tell people that you know that they can't rebuild in a you know in an area. Um, so I think we're seeing a real change in that some of those ideas are more palatable now. Well, that's interesting because I feel like I mean I feel like we we had that conversation Danielle like a couple of years ago about where people are building. So to see you know the legislature kind of catch up to that conversation is something I wonder about. And I wonder specifically with what's happened during the pandemic, has has the pandemic created any unique opportunities for big solutions? Or, you know, is that big solution that, that you just talked about kind of something that would have come up naturally anyways? I think the pandemic has made, has made it harder for California to change its relationship with fires. It made mm-hmm. training firefighters harder, for example, because they had to socially distance. It made... It made it more dangerous for crews to work together because they could they could possibly transmit diseases. Um, and, you know, like Molly was talking about, with some people moving out of the Bay Area, many of those people are moving into fire-prone zones because they tend to be very beautiful and they tend to be a lot less expensive than, than urban areas. So I think the only the only opportunity that might pre- present itself is the pandemic has caused people to think about big problems and big solutions, um, and the inequity that we just see baked into, you know, how the state is right now. Yeah. Um, and so it may open, conver- you know, a space for conversations that would not have had have happened before. Totally. And I actually want to ask Molly and Dan the same thing. Molly, especially with housing, like with every with all the attention that we pay on housing in the Bay Area, is there something that happened during the pandemic, which a lot has happened regarding housing that's really opened up the door for a new conversation and a new way of, pro- of, of approaching what's been a, a decades old problem? Yeah, I mean, people that I've spoken to, I mean, let's just take one of those things, evictions. I mean, it's pretty much unheard of when you talk to tenant advocates or people who research evictions that any city or you know jurisdiction would even think about having some sort of eviction moratorium so like that alone is just like completely unprecedented and that's largely happened because you know we've seen actually in some research and some studies that have come out that lifting these eviction moratoriums or you know creating a situation where people are going to get pushed out of their homes and maybe they'll end up doubling up and living in overcrowded housing situations or becoming homelessness like that could actually increase the spread of coronavirus in a pandemic you know not just for those people but for like the whole community so it's been seen as like a real preventative health issue and i think has really driven home this point that like it is like a part of our, you know, to, to, to be a healthy community, we have to keep people housed. Um, so I think just the fact that, you know, California today just announced that they're going to reach, that they've reached this deal to, you know, possibly extend a, a ban on evicting people who can't pay rent because they've lost their job through the pandemic all the way through June. So, I mean, that's that's a huge deal. And that's a that's a big thing for people who, yeah. who are, have lost income. And that's something that's come out of this whole experience that we're in. Um, I would say the same thing yeah. about how we've been addressing homelessness, you know, like Project Room Key, Home Key has had some, you know, mixed results. But overall, I think it's really shown that there is a lot that we can do in a very short amount of time to get people housed quickly. 
And those projects, I'll just mention quickly, uh, you, I, you know more about it than I do, but they're basically the attempt of, of government to house people living on the streets in hotels for a certain amount of time. Uh, some people who have COVID, others who are at risk. Um, but yeah, I remember that when that project was announced, how like people were thinking, is this something that California could have done all along? And is this here to stay? Um, and I, I just wonder how much of that pressure is going to continue as you know, the, the the vaccination comes out and the kind of the pandemic eases a little bit. Dan, uh, same same question. Um, has it opened up the door for conversations about big solutions or just big big ideas? And what are those ideas? You know, the, the whole discussion about public transportation, there's something that one of the things that is sort of, you know, in the background there and very important to think about is climate change. Right. And so the, the Bay Area has a long term uh, transportation and development plan, Plan Bay Area 2050, that is um, supposed to um, you know, come up with a, a variety of solutions to cut greenhouse gas emissions, among other things. And one of the things that's, uh, that people have seized upon is the fact that it's been shown all of a sudden that you, we don't need to commute every day, right? A lot of right. the, of the uh, office-based businesses can succeed quite well with people working from home. So that's one major change we may see going forward. Like I said before, that doesn't work for everybody. And so there's another big idea that people are talking about, and I think it's, we're really in the early stages of it because it, it's very expensive, and that is the idea of free public transportation. If you really wow. want people to yeah. ride, that is the way to get people on board, and it would make it so much easier for our essential worker population, people who don't have the option. There is a, a Freedom to Move Act that was introduced uh, last year by Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts in the House. Um, I don't think it went anywhere, but uh, people sort of see that as a template for funding pilot projects to get transportation agencies that are cash-strapped, right? Yeah, um, they, yeah. they, they depend on uh, uh, passengers for fares to see if there's ways of, of moving toward that. And so I think that's, that's the biggest, boldest idea out there. Dan, I feel like I should know this, but are, are there any public transportation systems that are free? You know, there are no big ones that are free. Okay. There are, you know, in the Bay Area, I mean, the one that I, I see most often pointed to is Emeryville, which has a, um, you know, Emeryville is a small uh, pocket-sized city uh, in between Berkeley and Oakland. They have something called the Emery Go-Round, which is actually a really yeah. functional uh, yep. transportation system to bring people between office parks and uh, retail areas and uh, and BART, essentially. I want to ask, uh, bring, bring in audience questions, which means we can continue the conversation through the audience. Um, and this first question is uh, to Danielle from Linda Ray on Zoom. She says, uh, we don't hear much about the connection between climate change and the increasing number of megafires in the world. Occasionally, it may be mentioned, but it will continue to worsen until we do something about our carbon emissions. What's been your experience reporting on this issue? Climate change is a huge, important driver in the increase of our megafires. It is not the only game in town. There are, there are also other factors at play, like uh, more than a century of fire suppression and more people moving into the dangerous path of fires. So 
absolutely, we need to get our emissions under control and we need to draw them down. And there are efforts now at the federal level and certainly at the state level, and, and Dan touched on this, to, to draw our emissions down. But if we only focus on the climate change aspect of this, that ignores many things that we can do to alter the behavior of these intense fires. And so that's, that's been some of the focus of my reporting, um, how to harden homes, how to protect communities, how to build in fire breaks, um, how to get more prescribed healthy fire on the land so that we, we can more quickly make this state a less dangerous place to live. But, right. but for certain, we, you know, we do cover the climate fire connection a lot, mm-hmm. but, I, but I think it's important to also talk about the other things that we can do to, um, to reduce the intensity of megafires. Cool. Dan, this next question is to you from Richard Luna on Twitter. Uh, I'm worried about public transit agencies remaining solvent during this continued economic crisis. When things get back to normal, will we still have the same access to public transit as we had pre-COVID? Well, you know, that's a really excellent question. And I think all the agencies are are thinking about exactly what their services are going to look like. You'll have something like the same access how long that will take is is a is a major question. I, some people think it's going to take until 2035 or beyond until we'll see next year's, I mean last year's level of service. I think one thing that's for sure uh, for uh, a place like San Francisco, the system is going to look different because um, there is much more consciousness about um, about trying to serve a a broader population. And, you know, there was just an example of this the other day. Muni launched a, a new line um, to Bayview-Hunters Point, the, the 15 uh, Hunters Point Express. Uh, this is to an area that has often complained, where residents have often complained and their elected representatives have, uh, have protested that the transit uh, service there, quote, sucks. They want to really make it better. And so I think things are going to look different it's going to take a long time to get back to what we thought of as normal if we ever if we ever do. Thanks. And this next question is for Molly. Uh, it's about the the housing stock. Is there any thinking about housing stock? Um, the conversion of, of previous rental units going to vacation rental or Airbnbs, for example, or the regional caps to preserve long-term housing stock. Uh, this person who's anonymous lives in West Marin, and our housing stock has shrunk as a result of empty second homes and the proliferation of vacation rentals. So I think the question kind of is around this idea of um, any creative thinking regarding the housing stock going around the Bay Area. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting. I mean, I think that those ideas are kind of like we're seeing some of that, like kind of different ways of rethinking you know, how to build housing without maybe starting from scratch, because it is just so incredibly expensive for so many reasons, you know, to build in California. Um, and and it's, it's all made more expensive because of the fact that we have a low housing stock and that we desperately need yeah. more housing. Um, but I think some of the things that we're seeing, which is kind of interesting, is actually how they're using some of these areas to build the housing to move folks out of the hotels that I talked about in terms of the Project Room Key initiatives mm-hmm. and, and thinking of different and creative ways to build more permanent low-income housing, which, 
you know, we have all of these different types of housing that we're lacking in. Low-income housing is one that we are very, very lacking in. Um, and so, like, we've seen some proposals that have come out and received funding from, from the state that are, like, on a farm. Some of them are, like, buying up single-family homes that would have gone out onto the rental market and then actually, like, renting those out, but at a cheaper rate. Um, we're seeing, obviously, like, the conversion of the motels and hotels. Uh, and even some college dormitories where we no longer need some of that student housing space, either because a campus has, you know, gotten smaller um, and, 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 you know, just downsized in general, or because of the, the whole, you know, people doing remote learning right now. Um, yeah. So I do, I mean, some of the creative ways that I'm seeing this, this you know, looking for, for cheaper ways to build is, is like currently like that way, which I find really fascinating. Um, and just when you like compare the costs, like, I mean, there was a housing development recently that I saw, there was some chatter about on Twitter. Uh, it was in Berkeley and it was something like a 10 unit affordable housing proposal. And the number to build it from scratch was gonna be like a million dollars per unit. So it's just like wild to think that that is how much yeah. something is gonna cost to build. Um, and then some of these conversion projects that we're able to do that have already been built but might need to just be, I don't know, uh, making slight adjustments, uh, maybe making them like ADA compliant. Like it brings the cost down to like 135000 per unit. So like that's much more manageable than a million dollars. So, I mean, certainly it is a, it is a smart and cheaper way of providing housing than, uh, than maybe starting from the bottom up. I want to ask you just one more question each before you go. Um, and this is kind of a, a leaving on a positive note. What is a bright spot in each of your beats that's come out of this last year that we should be paying attention to? And maybe, Dan, I'll start with you. Well, uh, slow streets. Um, I think the adoption of slow streets in uh, in Oakland and San Francisco and some other communities and, and uh, recognizing that people are you know, really more inclined to get outside and walk that yeah. kind of thing. That's been a huge positive. And there's something called Seamless Bay Area. It's a, a group that's trying to knit together these 27 agencies. It's gotten off the ground. Um, it's going to require a lot of work to sort of um, re-envision uh, the way our transit system works. But the idea is to have a unified fare and schedule structure so that um, it's actually a rational process going from one end of the bay to the other on, uh, on numerous separate transit systems. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? Thanks, Dan. Uh, Danielle, one bright spot out of your beat over the last year. One bright spot. Um, the, the state took on about 35 vegetation management projects that had to be done um, before the 2020 fire season. And we had a terrible, we had a terrible fire season, but it could have been worse if it wasn't for those projects. We saw, we saw those projects actually protect communities in some areas. As a second bright spot, um, there's been a lot more interest and discussion about tribal burning around the state, which was how native tribes traditionally took care of the land. And there is more will at the state level to help them con- continue to do that work and expand that work. And that's been really encouraging to see. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, Molly. Yeah, uh, one thing that I saw, you know, that 
believe she did a story on recently, was just the idea that because the rental market has been shifting and there have been a lot of vacancies and you know, rents have been down, it's actually caused landlords to be a little bit more open-minded about who they're renting to. <laughs> and there's been a lot more participation in some of these programs that the city and counties in the Bay Area are working on to, um, to house more folks, you know, lift them out of homelessness uh, and maybe house people who have, you know, a spotty rental history or have a prison record or have had past evictions. Um, and who now have a, a guaranteed rent subsidy. Hmm. So I think for the landlords, it's like guaranteed rent versus having a you know apartment or a unit sit on the rental market. Um, yeah. And for other folks, it's an opportunity to be housed. So yeah, that's just been kind of an interesting thing that I've seen come out of this. Yeah, another piece of the equity piece um, that is something that I am particularly interested in following, which is inherent, I feel like, in, in all the stories that you all work on on a regular basis. So thank you so much. That's KQED science reporter Danielle Venton, housing reporter and co-host of the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, Molly Solomon, and our transportation editor, Dan Brecky. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Coming up, part two of our live virtual event about what life in the Bay Area will be like in 2021. Stay with us. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. All right, so we're going to transition over a little bit. Uh, We just talked about housing, transit, and fires, which are about where we live. Now we're going to shift uh, to our second group of reporters and talk a little bit about what we do. Uh, We are joined now by our education reporter, Vanessa Rancano. Arts Associate Editor Nastia Voynovskaya and Silicon Valley Reporter Sam Harnett. So we uh, talked a little bit about the equity piece, which I actually want to get into with y'all as well. Um, how does that show up in each of your beats and the stories that you're thinking about in 2021? And I think I'll start with Vanessa. Well, I think probably everybody has heard the word digital divide about a zillion times since the pandemic started, that has been a huge story. And unfortunately, you know, things have not improved as much as we might like. Um, But to give you an example, it was about half of Oakland Unified's 
50,000 public school and, and charter school students who didn't have a device or internet when the pandemic started. So there was a massive fundraising effort um, to try to get devices out to, to people. Beyond the devices themselves and the internet access, we've seen a huge tech literacy divide. Um, lots of students who didn't have these devices at home, didn't know how to use them, and lots of parents um, who had never used email, for instance. And so districts and community organizations have had to put in a lot of, of effort, individual effort, to try to bring parents up to speed. Um, yeah. Beyond that, I would just say that kids who have parents who are essential workers who can't be home with them. Um, we've seen them struggling more. Uh, also students who are having to care for siblings, right? If their parents aren't home. Um, very different from say a family that both parents are home but working, but they can afford to have a tutor at home, right? My sister is working as a tutor yeah. with a family. I was just thinking of all the different situations that people are in, like having to make very specific decisions without, I mean, without anybody telling them what's really best, like they just have to make the decision for what's best for their own families. And we're all kind of going through that, but people with kids and, and people who both want schools open, but then also don't want to send their kids to a school if, it, if they don't feel like it's safe. I imagine it's just a really hard thing to deal with for, a, for any school district, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that interests me the most right now in terms of this debate around school reopening is that we see this really vocal um, and increasingly organized effort on the part of parents who really want to see schools reopen, who really want their kids back uh, in classrooms. Um, and then a less visible, I'd say, group of parents who are actually in the majority who say that they don't don't want their kids back right in surveys mm. that these districts have done it's it, it's a little over 50 percent in general who say that they're not ready to send their kids back and then when you break it down by demographics for example in oakland uh, it's only about a third of black and latino parents only a third of low-income parents who say that they would send their kids back to school right now right and these are the parents the families yeah. that are in the area's hardest hit mm -hmm. by covid right. sam uh, i want to talk about work now because this is interrelated with everything that's uh, intersecting with their lives right now, school and work. And you have been reporting on a lot of statewide issues in California related to work. And the big one, I think, was Prop 22. Can you just explain just a little bit about Prop 22 and what happened this last year and how you're thinking about that in 2021? Sure. So, uh, yeah, in a nutshell, Prop 22 legalized uh, the gig worker model, which just means that companies like Uber and Instacart can deny their workers employee benefits. Um, AB5 was going to deliver those benefits. It was right on the cusp. There was a, a lawsuit from the attorney general. Prop 22 overturned all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest labor stories in the last few decades. Um, you know, earlier in the fall, I did this, this project, How We Got Here, which was looking back at the last 50 years of how corporations have undermined uh, the working class and how in America more and more has shifted from shareholders and away from workers. And the gig economy is the, is the tip uh, uh, of that that transition and how are you seeing that ripple out in the bay area 
Well, as Vanessa was saying, I mean, I was thinking about when Vanessa was talking, just thinking about school and stuff. And like, I've interviewed so many people who they used to have a service job. You know, they lost their service job. Now they're uh, doing Instacart or DoorDash. And you interview them at their home. They had like two or three kids on Zoom calls doing school. They're like going to go do their Instacart shift. I mean, it's a mess. Um, you know, so I think a lot of people, you know, yeah, rent went down a tiny bit, but it's still extremely, unaf- extremely unaffordable here. Um, and you're just seeing people are desperate for any kind of work that they can get. Yeah. And this work is unprotected. And, uh, you know, people just in a difficult position. It's also the um, gig work is, is is a is a type of work that a lot of people are turning to now, having lost other jobs. And I know Nastia, you've reported a lot about the arts sector taking a huge hit during the pandemic. So when you think about twenty twenty one, what what are you like? There's so many things to think about with the arts, but what is, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, I'm definitely thinking about which uh, places can make it through the rest of the pandemic. Um, Events won't be back at their full capacity until everyone is vaccinated. So what does that mean for the small theaters and independent venues that aren't backed by giant corporations like Live Nation or aren't huge nonprofits backed by a wealthy foundation? And then what happens to all the people that worked at those places like the... um, light tech, sound people, um, the bartenders and people like that, most of them are still in employment. So I think um, whatever federal um, unemployment relief that can come from the Biden administration will make a huge difference for these people in addition to state and local efforts. And then also I'm looking out for um, what audiences can expect because you know we we um, won't have in person music or theater events anytime soon. So people are getting creative with online events, and then also as the state opens back up, um, we'll see more things like drive-in concerts as well. Hmm. Well, interesting. Let's talk a little bit about those creative uh, fixes or short-term solutions that 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 are happening in the arts. Is that is what's happening to kind of fill that void or that gap? enough and if not then who is filling that gap it's not i mean is, is it state is it federal money that has to come in or are people finding other ways to do it you you kind of talked a little bit about uh having the means to be able to do that maybe that means like fundraising and things like that but i'm curious how are those gaps getting filled yeah um a lot of independent artists are just purely out of work because they can't tour and that was uh, for music at least that was the main way that they made their income So yeah, a lot of them are getting unemployment. Um, Others who may be more underground or emerging beginning artists whose uh, income from their art isn't all documented and on the books may not qualify for unemployment. So um, I know uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. I know a lot of people are applying for artist grants. There's been a lot of nonprofits that have come out, like Hardly Strictly, for example, that are giving pretty big grants to artists. Um, (laughs) Well, not big, but, you know, at least something to, Yeah. yeah, to last a couple of months. Um, But yeah, and then um, I think this is where my beat really crosses over with Sam's, where a lot of these people are turning to gig work. Um, There's things like Instacart. A lot of artists have created accounts on um, Patreon and even websites like OnlyFans. Um, I interviewed a touring musician who now is a, a kindergarten teacher for an unofficial learning pod. So there's just lots of things like that going on. 
Wow. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised in the arts that there's a lot of creativity in, in how they do their work. I think, Vanessa, like thinking about schools and how structured schools are in terms of where they get their money and what, what even a day, look like, day looks like, I wonder, like, how are the gaps in education getting filled if they are getting filled? Like, are we just basically waiting on more money from the state and federal governments? And is that just not happening? In some cases, yeah. Um, but there are some community organizations uh, in different parts of the state, in Oakland, in LA, um, that have stepped up and created some of their own um, supports, really their own distance learning model that, at least according to parents I've talked to who are, who are doing that, is working better than the district's model. Um, beyond that, Teachers and other educators mm -hmm. have stepped up in some pretty amazing ways. Um, I mean, we saw lots of people donate their their relief checks to students. They've there's food distribution efforts. People are dealing with trying to get um, people immigration lawyers, trying to get them protected if they're under threat of eviction. So just a lot of like one-on-one -on -one help. And like I said, huge, huge um, tech support efforts yeah. by teachers. Yeah. And then there's been a ton, I mean, Sam maybe can speak to this, but there already was a trend towards um, schools turning to private sector funding because of disinvestment at the state level. And I think that we've only seen that accelerate you know, 10 million of the $13 million that Oakland raised to buy devices for students came from Jack Dorsey. And oh, wow. I mean, we've seen that another, Jeez. like at the statewide level, we've seen our officials turn to, to the private sector and to philanthropic dollars in some cases. And, you know, we, we all know who did well in the pandemic, right? Elon Musk, uh, Bezos, you know, they're all, they're <laughs> worth tens and tens of millions of more dollars. And yeah, I agree, Vanessa. It's been really interesting to see this uh, sort of uh, turn to the private sector. Uh, and I even think of the simple things, like right now we're on Zoom, which is owned by a third party organization. Are they collecting our data? What are they doing with it? Um, you know, we all use Google Docs now and Slack. And, and so that in the workplace, that's that's an issue. And then also in schools, like they're using private, you know, uh, uh, software con controlled by private companies. I mean, I think the same thing about the jobs and, and Instacart and DoorDash. I mean, the argument that the gig companies are making are like, hey, listen, there's no jobs right now. We're, we're filling in the gap. But the flip side of that is the gig companies, uh, because they classified their workers as contractors, never played, paid into state unemployment. So there's no unemployment for all the Uber and Lyft drivers when they couldn't drive because of the pandemic. So it does, I mean, this is the biggest story, I think, I think for all of us, is this private public, uh, you know, how, how much are, is it going to be totally free market and privatized and how much is the federal and state and local governments going to st step in? And right now, you know, besides the, 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 the COVID stimulus checks, like there's a lot of people yeah. falling through yeah. the gaps. I, I want to end at least our part of the conversation on a on a, as much of a positive note as we can. So, Nasty, I'm going to go back to you and ask you: Over the last year, what's one bright spot that you've seen come out of your arts reporting or people in the arts um, that you'd like to share? 
Um, the, the bright spot that really emerges for me, um, I think mutual aid, a lot of people have really banded together to donate to unemployed workers. Um, the Queer Nightlife Fund comes to mind. It's a, it's an organization that sprang up during the pandemic and they're giving out survival grants to people who are unemployed in the queer nightlife scene. And then beyond that, I think also just, um, city and state and maybe even federal with this new administration, uh, governments realizing the value of the arts and how if we want to have vibrant culture and arts in our communities, we do need government support, especially in such an expensive place like California. So, um, for example, San Francisco is experimenting with universal basic income for artists. And if that takes off, I think that'll... Wow. Uh, Vanessa, can, can I ask you the same question? Uh, something that you've seen, uh, people or, or things that are happening that's a positive? Well, beyond that, the community organizations that I mentioned and the way that they've stepped up, one thing that I've heard both from teachers and from some students is that there are people I mean, A, there are a lot of students who have computers and internet at home who never did before, right? So I think that's a good thing. And a lot of those students are going to get to keep those computers, at least in Oakland, um, beyond the pandemic. And they're learning how to use email and they're learning how to use um, some of these other tools that some of their wealthier peers, you know, were well versed in already. So I think that's a pretty positive thing. Bright spots, not my, not my strong suit. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna give you two. I'm gonna give you one that's an actual bright spot and I'm gonna give you one that's like a kind of a bright spot. The one bright spot is, uh, you know, I guess in the context of, if, if you look at the last 50 years and the, and the redirection of money and resources to shareholders instead of workers, uh, there's an increase of worker power and awareness now. So actually, if you see behind me, these are tech workers uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, doing a protest a couple years ago. That movement has grown. Uh, there's union efforts at Amazon, but also at Google. Uh, they just announced a worker union, and I've never seen anything like that in the tech industry. Um, so that's, you know, again, if you think workers need more power, that's a bright spot. And then the pseudo bright spot is that uh, there's a lot more awareness now, a lot more class awareness. Like, uh, I mean, I think this has been happening over the last four years, but like, you know, bourgeois, like upper middle class people are finally waking up to the fact that there's major problems in this country and there's major income inequality in the, in the, in the pandemic exposed that. Um, so... That's a bright spot, although on a bad thing. Yeah. Do you think we're going to go down uh, from 40 hours a week to 30? We're supposed to be at four, remember? John <laughs> Kenneth Galbraith way back in the day, I think, was like, you know, automation. I keep waiting. You know, tech, we should all be working very little. But, uh, That's what I'm saying. <laughs> probably not. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the, the, other, the real question is, are we going to get the $15 an hour minimum wage? I think that's really... Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I'm going to turn it to uh, audience questions and listener questions uh, now for the remaining of the time. Nastia, the first one goes to you. It's from Don Izzo, I think is how you say the last name. How do you see the music venue space bouncing back when the new normal returns? New normal, of course, in quotes. Being in the East Bay, I've seen Uptown and Starline close. I, oh, I love Starline. Uh, do you think there's a space for a new independent venue um, space in the, in the Bay, particularly in Oakland, that could see success? Thanks for the great question. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's tricky. Like the okay, so the music venue landscape will definitely be different at least for a while when we come back. Like you mentioned, Starline and the Uptown closed in Oakland. Um Spirit House Gallery also closed, the Stork Club and so Oakland didn't have that many live music venues to begin with, and these are the places that nurture your kind of like up and coming acts. So um there will be fewer places for smaller acts to play, um, so I I'm envisioning in the beginning that might lead to maybe a resurgence in underground um, events and warehouse spaces and things like that, um, which, um, you know, like, isn't necessarily always safe, as we saw with the ghost ship fire. Um, but uh, I am somewhat hopeful about um, new venues popping up in Oakland after all this is over, because... Um, uh, basically, it's there. There are more large, um, like real estate parcels in Oakland where people could set up music venues. Because to have a music venue, there are all these kind of like zoning restrictions. Like it can't be too close to residential. It needs to have like a big open space without huge beams blocking the stage and stuff like that. So there are fewer places like that for venues to move into in San Francisco, and there are more in Oakland. So um, hopefully, we'll see new cool things happening. But. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> cool. Thanks. Um, I'm also reminding uh, y'all of KQD's new event space that's going to be opening up uh, hopefully at the in the fall this year. Um, so we'll have a lot more events and um, hopefully cool music uh, shows there as well. Uh, this next question, Sam, is going to you from SJ Wickwire. Can you shed any light on the decision by Safeway to shift delivery to DoorDash, uh, DoorDashers versus their own drivers? Yeah, it's uh, this this far into the pandemic. Simple. It makes them more profit. I mean, <laughs> that that's that's the that's the impetus. They're saving so much money uh, on employee benefits, uh, and contractors are cheaper. And now that Prop Twenty Two made it legal, why not? And we're going to see a ton more of this. I mean, this is just the, again just the tip. Uh, uh, of, of the iceberg on this because corporations for, for the last 50 years have been trying to shift workers from employees to contractors to deny them benefits. Um, so yeah, there were, I mean, there were some workers in, in the Bay Area who unionized and uh, delivery uh, workers and who are not going to be replaced with uh, DoorDash contractors, but mm -hmm. hundreds are getting laid off. Thanks. Uh, this next question is for Vanessa and Sam. Uh, this question is from Natalie. Do you see it as a bright spot that with remote learning and working, we are commuting less, using less fossil fuel, and, and polluting less? Um, thinking about climate change, doesn't this benefit us all um, in, in the phase of climate change? I mean, my first thought to that question is it's great if you can do it, but uh, there's so many people who you know need to commute to work uh, and also so many people who need to have their kids in school so because you know they have a job or two and they can't care care for them so in an ideal world we would all be in the position where we could again work those 15 10 15 hours a week and take care of our kids and and not commute um, but i think it's been really hard on a lot of low-income folks yeah i mean i basically agree with that i think the experiences have just been so radically different from one family to the next um some kids are really doing quite quite okay in distance learning, at least from an academic standpoint. And there are kids, on the other hand, who just are not showing up and we really don't know where they are. So I think we should be worried about them, climate change notwithstanding. 
No one to levity. Vanessa, I was actually curious. Have, are, are a lot of kids like gaming the system? Like I heard a story of a kid who like took a still photo of himself and put it on Zoom and then was like playing his video game. Which I was like, that kid, that kid's learning some life skills right there <laughs> that, that might come in handy later later in life. Yeah, the the attendance system is totally different during distance learning. So you, for instance, could simply check in with your teacher via text and tell them I'm having issues, I can't connect right now, and you're not absent, like they'll mark you as present. So so it's a really different system. But I will say having watched my to my brother and sister who are in high school, uh, watching them do distance learning, my little brother would turn on his class in some cases and then start watching Orange is the New Black and just be fully <laughs> laying on the couch watching TV. And occasionally he would hear his name and run over to his computer. So, Tricky. Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. Not uh, great. Vanessa, I think <laughs> so I think a big question to you, Vanessa, then is like, and a lot of parents want to know this, is what will it take for schools to open up again? And I know it, it may vary from district to district, but can you shed any light on, on that um, answer? I mean, this is what we all want to know. I will say that Dr. Fauci said recently that he thinks it's fairly likely that we won't see a return to normalcy in schools until the fall. I think key is a drop in case rates. I mean... Every, every union is talking about that. Districts are talking about that. Um, obviously, I mean, the state's own framework won't allow schools to reopen if case rates are too high. I think vaccinations will help, but we've seen both the state level teachers union and, and local unions say that that's not gonna be enough. Um, I think that money for facilities upgrades is going to be really important. So ventilation mm. systems and that kind of stuff, um, having enough money to to deal with the testing and tracing. I, I think there's been more progress on that front um, than some of the other things. And then the last thing, I mean, in districts where a lot of those other pieces are already in place um, or close to being in place, the sticking point seems to be how to figure out this hybrid model that's going to allow some parents to stay in distance, some kids to stay in distance learning and other kids to come back in person and teachers being really concerned about how to equitably serve both um, pools of yeah. students. Yeah. I mean, we've seen the equity piece just in the vaccination rollout itself be a really big, uh, really hard thing to tackle. Um, and I imagine schools is, is no different. Um, I mean, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of people who, like I mentioned at the beginning, who've gotten engaged in, in 2020. They want to continue that. Um, maybe they have the means to contribute or to help out in some way. And we're getting a lot of questions about how people can help. So I want to ask each each of you, thinking about your, your beats and, and what you cover, um, what how can everyday people contribute or, or help out in innovative ways to solve some of these critical challenges that you're all talking about. And Nastia, I think I'll start with you. Yeah, um, I think that's great that people are interested in that. And I would say if, if you wanna support the arts, um, support the artists directly. If you can buy their music on Bandcamp, you know, sometimes it gives you the option to pay more than the listed price. If you can do that, um, contribute to some of these mutual aid efforts like the Queer Nightlife Fund or the Oakland Workers Fund. Um, also, um, 
you know, when things like the Save Our Stages Act that passed in the last um, stimulus package are being debated in Congress, call your lawmakers. So I think th those are all ways. Thanks. Sam, what about you? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is is actually just like awareness. I think being like aware of class privilege and where you fit into this hierarchy. I mean, anyone who... I mean, there's so many people who have actually uh, benefited from the pandemic or, you know, have had time to, to, to do things. And like, if, if you're not experiencing it totally terribly, you're probably, uh, you know, in a certain uh, side of that class spectrum. So I think an awareness uh, and, and just like really trying to understand what's going on and like know the history. And um, but then in a practical sense, like some stories I did at the beginning of the pandemic, like. Like, you know, if you have uh, someone who comes and helps you like a, a maid or a, a house cleaner or a, a, a nanny or something like that, and they can't come because of COVID, like, and you can pay them, pay them, you know, I mean, if, if you got the money, if you have to use DoorDash, like, just give a $20 tip. I don't know. I mean, if you can, like, I think all of us should be uh, uh, kind of, you know, doing our own reparations for class inequities right now. Yeah, I think that goes back to Vanessa, what you were saying earlier, where uh, Oakland Unified was asking people to give up their stimulus checks and some people were doing it. Um, that was voluntary. It, was, it wasn't the school district asking folks to do oh, right. that. Okay. But, but yeah, there are efforts. Um, individual schools, I believe, have GoFundMe-like campaigns that you could donate to. Um, there are district-wide funds in, in a lot of cases. Um, but but beyond that, uh, I guess just to to add to, to what Sam was saying, I would say before you start advocating, for instance, on behalf of black and brown families, like I hear some of these primarily white parent groups doing, talk to those families and talk to those parents and actually figure out um, what some of those parent groups are advocating for, um, because I've heard a fair amount of resentment um, from some of those parents who who feel like they're being it talked down to and not represented by some of these other <laughs> parent groups that claim to be advocating for reopening in the name of um, of black and brown parents, of low-income parents, um, without really working with them. I think these are all great. Thank you very much for sharing um, how we can all kind of go into 2021 thinking about what's happening when we read stories, uh, you know, with Bay Area News and not just read them, but take part. And the last question is somebody wants to know what kind of tea I'm drinking. Um, and it's not what I want to be drinking, but it's chamomile and it's not caffeinated. Um, I really looked hard to find some caffeinated tea, but it didn't happen. Um, and it's also a Waffle House mug that I'm drinking out of. So that's the wrap up for y'all. Um, thank you so much to our education reporter, Vanessa Rancano, our arts associate editor, Nastia Wojnowskaya, and uh, Silicon Valley reporter, Sam Harnett. Thank you so much for joining us um, and all to the reporters who joined us before as well. And thank you all for coming out. Um, I know that there are lots of, uh, lots of things you could be doing, um, taking time for yourself as well, which I think is important. So it means a lot that you spent your time with us. Um, so good luck and uh, good night. Talk to you later. Bye.
Thanks again to all the KQED reporters who joined us. That's Molly Solomon, Dan Brecky, Daniel Venton, Vanessa Rancano, and Nastia Voinovskaya. I also want to shout out all the people who made this event happen, especially Sarah Rose Leonard, Ryan Davis, Kiana Mogadam, and Isabeth Mendoza. The Bay is produced by Eric Cruz Guevara, Shaylin Martos, myself, and our editor, Alan Montecilio. We're made by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.